0: Getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but
1: I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most
0: effective process.
1: Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this.
0: I'm sure losing any child is, is a real arrow through your heart. But, but uh, you know, she was, she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. It feels just as good the 10th time as it did the first time, uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you.
1: There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. I'm Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue. This podcast is dedicated to all survivors of traumatic situations. Together we share our stories and explain the impact it's had on our lives, our families, and our communities. I survived an armed robbery and abduction. I was asked, how did you escape? I didn't, I was rescued by law enforcement. I Need Blue continues to focus on supporting our police officers, law enforcement, and first responders. Visit www.ineedblue.net to hear other courageous stories. Please keep in mind, I Need Blue does feature graphic content which can be sensitive and triggering for some. You always come first. Please seek help if needed. If you're a parent, you don't want to miss this episode. Bill Mitchell is the host and creator of When Dating Hurts, the podcast. Bill, thank you for joining us on I Need Blue today.
0: Hi, thanks for uh, asking me to come and do this with you. This is really quite an honor to be on your on your podcast uh, today, the things we talk about, information we give out, will really be helpful f- to parents who don't know a whole lot about dating violence and domestic violence, perhaps. So, uh, we're both here to help.
1: Yes, I look forward to the information you're gonna you're gonna share. So, you have a podcast, you're an author, and you focus on dating violence. It's a personal subject for you. Can you share your experience?
0: I really, if somebody were to have asked me back in May of 2005, way back then, what I knew about domestic violence, I couldn't fill a thimble with what I knew. I just had all the cliches. I had all the, oh, I guess it happens. Some guy comes home and has a couple drinks and gets unhappy with something that's going on at home and he hurts his wife in some way. He beats her or does something or wife or girlfriend for that matter. And I would have thought that it took place in, again, the stereotypical cliched places. It would be in some rough neighborhood. It would be some depressed part of town or a city. And I would never have guessed it would ever come anywhere near me or my family in any possible way. So quite naive about the whole thing. I think most people are, to tell you the truth. So that was May of 2005. And I mentioned that because... It was May 14th of 2005 that my daughter graduated from college. She'd been dating a guy most of that year of 2005, but she graduated. She had a job lined up. She kind of was all ready to go. I remember saying to people, well, we've got one of them out of the nest. You know, now we'll focus solely on my son who was four years younger. My daughter was 21. But she seemed to be pretty much set. She's very happy. Graduation was wonderful. Dating a guy the better part of that year, and we didn't know too much about him except that that in a conversation with my wife, my daughter said, well, it's not, the, it's not a perfect relationship. And my wife didn't pursue that very much because in the context of the talk they had, that it sounded like this guy will kind of come and go. You know, this guy's probably on the way out dialing him down or something like that. Didn't really think about it. We did meet him on the graduation day. And I knew a little bit about not the perfect relationship. But when I first met him, I thought, wow, I'd never want to tangle with this guy. Just something about him. Just some vibe I picked up right from the beginning. You know, just right from the handshake. Anyway, so she graduated. And 20 days later, June 3rd, 2005, I got a call from local detectives. Now, I live outside of Baltimore. She was living outside of Philadelphia. But local detectives tracked me down, and when I met with them in person, they told me that she had been murdered earlier that day. So that's really, um, I would call that the first great big leap into what domestic violence was really all about.
1: Social media. Did your daughter have a Facebook page that maybe you all were friends with her on, and maybe there were pictures of them, or anything to indicate things were awry? or? Because we can portray things how we want on social media.
0: In 2005, the first part of 2005, I did not have a Facebook page. Back in those days, I don't think it had been around very long, 2005. And I knew that she only started the account that year. Back at that time, there was another social media platform called MySpace. So she was on MySpace, which was pretty liberal in what they would allow you to put on there. It was pretty crazy. So she had a MySpace account, and a Facebook account, and when she was killed, we had a lot of her friends come to our house here after her funeral and burial and things. Uh, her friends knew her passwords and all these things, so they they encouraged me because I hadn't thought of it yet. I was still caught up and couldn't believe my daughter was killed and and making arrangements and things like that. But anyway, I went on her MySpace and Facebook. And I had to kind of figure them out at that time. But I took down any picture that had anything to do with him. And there were pictures of him on there. I got all those out of there. I actually was told by one of the friends that Facebook was the platform of the future. So I kept that. I actually dropped the whole MySpace thing.
1: I remember MySpace briefly.
0: Yeah, nobody talks about MySpace anymore. You know, it's it's all Twitter it's uh, Instagram, it's, it's uh, Twitter, it's TikTok, it's things like that. That's really what's hot. And of course, Facebook is still very hot.
1: Well, my question is, how has um, social media influenced the awareness on a positive side, but also the negative side is sometimes violence is glorified? How has that influenced things today in all of the research you've done?
0: The thing is this, that that whether it's social media, text messages, any number of things, they become these new, exciting ways to communicate. You could have a page that tries to save puppies and kittens, or you put something on there that is very provocative in the worst sense and encourages people to, let's just say, misbehave in general terms. So same thing with text messaging. Text messaging is great. And I'm not saying that's social media, but text messaging is great because you can be in contact with somebody without having to have a complete phone call, of course. And that was actually, by the way, pretty new back then too. Her graduation, uh, that particular day was the first time I actually heard about text messaging. But then again, you know, you can use text messaging to keep tabs on somebody you know, in an abusive relationship where are you now where are you now where are you now or you can use it to just communicate something quickly i'll be at the store another hour or i'll meet you at the restaurant you know i'm in traffic whatever that is same thing with facebook etc because you can i mean my my facebook page is all about dating and domestic violence to to get information out to people so that they know what i didn't know back in 2005 my wife and i didn't know enough about it to pick up on the warning signs and things like that. So all these things can be used for for good or for neutral, for harm. Depends on what you want to do.
1: Can you share the moment you were told your daughter was no longer with us?
0: So I was driving at the time. I'd been in a restaurant with my parents. My parents at the time were early 80s or so, their their age. My wife and son, again, we live outside of Baltimore, My wife and son were at a graduation party for some family friends. Their son had just graduated high school. My daughter was in Philadelphia. So I received a phone call from a female detective, and she said that she had been to my house. No one was there, and she wanted wanted to meet with me, and she needed to tell me something in person. And no matter how many times I asked in different ways, she said, No, I can't tell you over the phone. It has to be in person. I didn't know really who it was on the other end of the line because I thought, well, I hadn't immediately thought about female detectives. I hadn't thought about detectives for that matter, but female detective. I thought, I don't know. I mean, I could show up at my house, walk up to the door and get jumped by a bunch of guys for some reason. You know, I don't know. I wouldn't. I had nothing going on. But so I decided to pick a giant supermarket and kind of met there. And so she showed up right on cue with another detective and also two people who I found out later were bereavement counselors. She wanted to know if I would like to sit in her car and tell me something. And I kept saying, well, what is it? And she said, well, okay, you know, we just, I think we need a quiet place. And I had no idea. For all I know, a neighbor was killed that day and, and uh, or something to do with my son or my wife or something like that. I was not thinking because it was local detectives. I was not thinking it was my daughter who was 125 miles away. But anyway, I said, "Look, let's just do it right here." So, by the automatic doors of a grocery store, is when they said that, you know, "Mr. Mitchell, I hate to inform you, but your your daughter Kristen was murdered today by her boyfriend." And then, uh, I don't know if I asked or they just offered that she was stabbed to death by him. They had an altercation, and that's what happened. The next thing was that they wanted me to take a phone call with the detective who was in the Philadelphia area who had at least all the facts that they had gathered during that day. Now, she was, she was attacked and killed at about 3 a.m. on June 3rd, 2005, and I didn't get the phone call from police until 8 or so in the evening. Although it was summer, it was actually very cool out and it was raining. It was pretty much the way Hollywood would shoot that scene of it kind of being, you know, dark and rainy night and you get the worst news of your life delivered in front of a grocery store. A horrible thing, just a horrible thing. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm really sorry about that situation and your loss, and I can't imagine the grief as a mom myself. I can't imagine that phone call or that conversation. What was the grief like?
0: My initial reaction, I remember to this day very clearly, even though it's 16, almost 16 and a half years ago. My initial reaction was and I think I said to her I understand what you're saying and I just kind of stood there but it, your first reaction is I know what I know what somebody dying means you know the fact that it was my daughter didn't sink in immediately it's just oh I see so she's not around anymore she said I have to tell you you're taking this very well I guess she thought I was going to collapse or Freak out or start crying or doing something like that, and I said to her, "Well, I'm acting. I'm just acting, and it's just I just in my mind processing this. I didn't. It didn't occur to me to do any of those other things, you know, to have pitch a fit or something like that because I got it. I was like, okay, I understand. You know, I knew I was going to be crushed by it, but the other thing is, it's soon after after I talked with this other detective in Philadelphia. He told me everything he knew. Then I was driving back to my house, and I was fielding then calls with my wife, who I didn't tell what happened till I got home, and she drove home in the meantime, and my parents came over. All of this is getting to be like nine o'clock, nine thirty on a Friday night. But um, when I was driving the car by myself, though, that's when I started to process, and it was like no more birthdays with her, uh, no more holidays. I mean, I thought specifically of Christmas and Easter and all these things, you know, just, and it's just like this whole area of your life that you were looking forward to. I mean, all these things of marrying some, maybe some great guy and having kids and, you know, bouncing a little grandchild on your knee or whatever you do, that's gone now. You know, that's all edited out. That's, you know, that's all cut out of the out of the film that I was about to see. So that's really what it was like. And I remember gathering at home with my family, my wife and son and my two parents. My wife's parents had died years before. And I told them what it was and they were all crushed and crying and all that. And it wasn't too long after that, I thought this will somehow turn into an opportunity and a responsibility because I knew everybody would be watching the Mitchell family to see if we are going to cave in and go, you know, shut down and just stop living or whatever you do, you know, some people I've met who've lost their kids. I mean, they just, they change, you know, they become different people, you know, and they don't come back. They don't snap out of it. I knew we wouldn't do that, but I just thought somehow I don't know how this will, this, this will have greater meaning one day after that. I mean, that was a Friday night and now it's like nine or 10 o'clock I mean, you go from a rainy Friday to a hot June 4th, Saturday, and you're in and out of funeral homes and you're driving and walking around cemeteries. And, uh, you know, you're making these big decisions. I mean, you're going to be visiting this grave, and yet you feel because of the way things are transgressing fast that you have to pick things. You know, you have to make a decision today that we okay, we'll take that plot there and then we'll use this funeral home. And I mean, you're picking out caskets and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, you comp- obviously completely never saw this coming and you are you feel horrible. I was receiving calls from cemeteries, funeral homes, the apartment complex where she lived, she was killed in her apartment, and then also detectives that first day. You know, it was just one call after another and having to process all that. So. Yeah, it was a lot. It's really a lot.
1: It's not natural to plan your child's funeral. There's a progression we expect in life. And so we don't expect to be handling those types of things. How many times did you find yourself looking back and saying, how did I miss this? What, what could I have done? Not,
0: not as much as, uh, you know, I've kind of opened the door to at times maybe to feel a little guilty, you know, because you lost somebody like that. And why didn't I pick up on things? I think I've used that as my motivation to become a real energy source to get the information out about those things that maybe were there but weren't pursued. I mean, the conversation about he's not the perfect or it's not the perfect relationship that my wife heard my wife did what I would have done back then, which is just kind of go, okay, well, let's talk about something else. You know, Graduation's coming up soon and things like that. Or your job, I bet you're excited about your job because there's no point talking about the boyfriend who's, the curtain's coming down. Knowing what we know now, you would say things like, well, okay, so what would be the perfect relationship? Or, well, what makes it so not perfect? You know, you want to lead them. And that's a key thing for parents to learn. You have to want to, you have to figure out how to do it without it being an interrogation, which is a big turnoff. And of course, parents like to interrogate their kids, but, but just kind of bring them along. Just say, well, you know, where'd you meet this guy? Or, well, you know, what do your friends think about him? You know, there's different ways to kind of, the key is to get them to talk. It's not to hear yourself talking when, you know, and also not to judge, not to pounce on them, that type of thing. You know, my feeling about him, the moment I met him, wouldn't want to have to tangle with this guy. That was on a Saturday, May 14th, 2005. And two days later at work, I was looking at pictures that were snapped that day. And and I noticed in some of the pictures that he had a, a little, had a scar over one of his eyes and he had another scar next to his nose. And again, knowing what I know now, in fact, I asked another employee, this guy that was working with me. I said, what do you make out of those? Which I didn't notice standing there that day. I mean, they weren't like, he wasn't disfigured. It's just they were there. Because of the light, you could see him, shadows. And he said, looks like somebody had gotten a couple rough fights in his life. Now, of course, way too late. I'd probably do a background check on him. And I'd probably pick up the phone and just say, hey, look, tell me more about this guy. We were miles and miles apart and really hadn't. Hadn't felt the need to really talk about him very much.
1: Mm -hmm. And did they catch him?
0: So what happened was that he stabbed her 55 times. It was horrible. Stabbed and slashed. And then as best the police could put it together, because the only two people who were there when it happened were my daughter, who was now deceased, and this guy. What he did is, it seems, is he attacked her somewhere around 3 in the morning, but he didn't really take steps to get out of the apartment and and go to a hospital himself until something like 7 or 8 in the morning. And that's because in the interim of after killing her, he then proceeded to create evidence to make it look like it was self-defense on his part. So his story was that, that there was an argument and that she got a knife and came after him and he had to defend himself so that's so what happened is he went to a hospital and he got to the admitting nurse he had a friend take him there he got to the admitting nurse and gave his story now for the first time which was probably riddled with untruths to put it kindly but what happened is the admitting nurse seeing him and talking with him says, "Yo, oh, you were in a fight. Well, how about the other person? And he said, well, I think she may have died. And it's like, oh, okay, where is this place? And next thing you know, she's calling some of the, uh, the, the police who are inside the hospital to come up and find out and get this information. And then they sent police to my daughter's apartment and they had to break through the door and all that trying to see if they could save her. And she was, she was way gone by then. But anyhow, that's how they got him. That's how they picked him up right at the hospital.
1: Thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah. And he
1: doesn't deserve any more mention uh, after that, but I know people were wondering if he was, if he was caught. Tell me the moment you decided to use this situation, um, to write articles. I know you wrote articles and a book, and it just kind of moved forward from there. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yes. So from the time that she was killed to the time that he was officially taken from what was a county jail to prison in Pennsylvania, it was about 10 months. So it was June 3rd of 05, and then I believe it was uh, April 20th of the following year, he pled guilty to murder and he went off to do 15 to 30 years and he's still in prison as we speak. In terms of me becoming active in that area, we had the opportunity in November of 2005, which is something like five months after she was killed, to come to a candlelight vigil. And if we wanted to say a few words, we could, so we did. My son, who was all of 17, wrote something. My wife wrote something separately. I wrote something. We didn't share what we wrote with each other. We just decided, you know, write from your heart and then go up and speak. It was in the chapel. They did a candlelight vigil. And I created a video that ran about five minutes so people knew who she was. And we had the opportunity to speak. And, And the reception, the comments after we did what we did were so encouraging that's the first time the light came on my head that, you know, maybe we have something to say that people will listen to. It also occurred to me from hearing other people speak that evening that people who were who are trained in this area, meaning people who were official, people who, who learned through seminars or they took courses or, you know, they, they did this in college and that type of thing, but people who kind of learned, let's just say, through books and through classrooms and degrees as it turns out, weren't as interesting as people who actually had it happen to either themselves or their family members. And I didn't anticipate that would be the case. I heard the other people speak, and then I noticed when we speak, the place was quiet, you know, but there was rustling around with other people. And so as time wore on, I found that we had this kind of superpower that if we got up and spoke, that people were riveted to what we had to say. I think part of it out of respect, but I think part of it was they found that they needed to know the information. So that finishes that year. And then as time wore on, I was asked to speak before almost a thousand people for the House of Ruth, Maryland. I did that and that went very well. I only spoke for five or 10 minutes, but everybody was just so much in pats on the back. And that was great. I love when you said this. I love when you sent that. I had to pick between, are they just feeling sorry for me? Or did it was it really that good? And people said it was that good. And then at the end of the year, I wrote some more and someone said, well, why don't you stop writing articles and just go write the book at that point? So I thought, well, I really hadn't thought about writing the book and I had never written a book, but I learned. And so I got the book out there. My wife wrote a chapter, my son wrote a chapter Various other people who have just amazing things to say wrote chapters. People who read the book who said, I read it in a day. Some said, I read it in two days. This was a 320-page book they were reading in two days. So it came out in May of last year. It's self-published, so things like today, you know, the, the When Dating Hurts book gets a boost th- through vehicles like this. And then it was like, okay, what next? and I hadn't thought about podcasts, and I didn't know technically how to fit the pieces together. So then I launched myself at the end of last year into asking people I had met over the years if they would come on as guests. I always kept in touch with them. I was always writing them, here's what's going on now, what are you doing? So we kind of became friends with probably hundreds of people who I could later come back and call upon and say, would you sit down and do a podcast? And
1: You found your purpose.
0: I did. I did. You know, I, I, uh, this was a case obviously where my purpose was handed to me kind of like the right guy to get the job, even though I got here the hardest way. I mean, if I had it to all over again, I wouldn't be doing any of this and my daughter would still be around and she'd be 38 now. She was 21 back then. It's, it's a big burden, but uh, I have no choice. You know, I feel like I have to do this and and I didn't get a choice about what would happen with my daughter. So it's truly making the best of a bad situation.
1: Thank you for sharing because your information is going to save lives.
0: And And I think it actually already has. You can't prove something like that. You can prove when somebody gets killed. You can't prove when someone doesn't get killed. But I've had a lot of emails or people come have come up to me at run walks and things that we've used to run, and say, "I got to tell you, you know, I I almost got the same result as your daughter." And then I remembered things you had said in a speech, and I, you know, zigged when I was going to zag, so to speak. And so you can't prove any of that. I take it all. I take those things with a grain of salt. But but I've had a lot of people who've who've written me and said I was in a. I was in a relationship that my mother felt was very unhealthy. My parents couldn't stand this guy. My siblings couldn't stand this guy. And I kept hanging in there and hanging in there because we had good days, but we also had bad days. And then I heard your speech. And nowadays they'll say, I read your book and halfway through your book, I realized I'm crazy for for dealing with this person. You know, I have to get out of it and getting out of these relationships is quite dangerous as of course my daughter being the, Poster child for that. But getting out of these relationships, that's when things really go, uh, can go to a bad place, and you have to prepare to get out. You can't just say, okay, I'm done with this, because that other person will react. Anybody that's full of power and control in a relationship doesn't take well to be told they're being canceled.
1: Right. My podcast is about survivor stories uh, after the fact, after, you know, you've been the victim and on your way to being a survivor. But it is so important. And this is where your message comes in that we get out the information that's needed. So you don't become a victim. So you don't end up on my podcast as a survivor of something traumatic. Can you share with me a couple of things that you share with people on here are some warning signs to look out for?
0: They're not these things that you would never experience or you've never heard of. The thing is that they happen, but the point is they, they happen frequently. I'll give you some. For instance, to begin with, kind of like at the very top of it all, it's all about power and control. It's somebody who who kind of runs a controlling or dominant behavior situation, you know, that they have to have things their way, and that can apply to absolutely anything, including how you cut your hair, how you dress, what you do, and when you do it. Now, one of the key things about this is that these relationships don't start out horribly. They actually start out typically wonderfully. So you get somebody who, let's just kind of use the male-female Relationship, although it can happen in any type of relationship, could be male, male, female, female. And so, but I just use the most common one and the one I'm most, most familiar with. But it's kind of, it can start out as the storybook romance situation where, wow, you know, this guy takes me to nice places and he gets me things and he just seems to be just so friendly and he's charming and all these things. And that's kind of like, the big attraction. And the people who do this all the time are very practiced in this. I mean, they really know what they're doing. So that's where it kind of starts. And then it leads into, again, back into warning signs, it leads into isolation. So that person, that dominant guy, let's say in this case, in a male-female relationship, that dominant guy wants all of your attention on him. So that means that your friends are unnecessary and he'll try his best to kind of crop them out of your life, get them out of the picture. Your parents, your relatives, get them out of the picture. A lot of things you used to like to do, he's going to do his best to tell you, eh, you don't want to play tennis, it's hot. You know, it's I got better stuff to do. Or if your dad has a big birthday party coming up and this guy gets wind of it, heck, he might go buy tickets to some show that night. You go, oh God, I totally forgot about your father's thing. I bought these tickets. These are like great tickets. And there are, and they are great tickets. Isolation's really the next step. And then it leads into threats of violence. And so somebody doesn't have to hit you to control you. They have to somehow find a way to let you know that if they don't get their way the way they want their way, that things could get get rocky, you know, could, could get bad. Somebody who maybe slams on the brakes in the car and you jerk forward and and says, look, you know, when you talk to me and say things like that, that sounds like the way my mother used to talk with me. And I never put up with that. So you sound just like her and you're thinking, oh, I want to get back to the storybook romance. I don't want this guy mad. Not always, but sometimes then the next step is real violence where somebody gets strangled or somebody gets punched or somebody gets slapped or something's thrown or they kick your dog or whatever that is. Something gets, you know broken in the house. For the relationship to keep going, it's followed up by some kind of a convincing apology where somebody says, look, you know, <clears throat> when you said those things, yeah, you know, I had a rough week. I thought I was going to get a raise. I didn't get a raise. Uh, you know, I was just mad. It's not about you. You know, I'll never do this again. Um, you know, w- what do you want to do? Let's go out to eat. Let's go to that place that you love. Or maybe, maybe the next day, He shows up with a new cell phone for you if he's got some money. It's like, oh wow, I get the uh, iPhone 13, you know, instead of my iPhone six or seven or whatever you have with the broken screen. And maybe he broke the screen, but then it goes back to storybook romance, and that cycle repeats: storybook romance, isolation, threats of violence, actual violence, apology, Ding, ding 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 ding, and it keeps going. And for some people. This goes on for months into years, and maybe they even get married on top of all this, and it keeps going. I've met people who've been in this type of situation with the violent parts in there for thirty years. You know, it's somebody who controls you through tons of text messages, uh, phone calls, checking up on you, uh, finds ways to to eliminate things in your life so that he is the only he's the only point. You know, but you know, hey, I've got money, you don't need to work, and you're thinking, boy, it'd be nice not to have to work. Well, he didn't want you to work because he wants to control the money. And if he's the one with the money, then you don't have money and you're under control. And that's the way that stuff goes. But it's just somebody who prevents you from being the you that you used to be. And it and it's not done immediately, it takes time. But these people are practiced. That you don't don't just get to raise your hand one day and say, you know, I'm done with you and that's it and I don't want to hear from you and I'm not calling you and I'll see you later. That person's going to explode. So that's a whole new area of how to get out of there without getting hurt, you know, how to, how to remain safe breaking up.
1: There's a lot of fear and that's how they control.
0: Fear is a bigger motivator than getting rewards. These relationships are all about rewards and punishments. Do what he wants You get rewarded somehow, even if it's he's nice today. Punishments are punishments. You know, things are taken away. Things are broken. Somebody yells at you and your ears are ringing. If you comply with somebody who is abusive, then you'll see better days. And people eventually who are being abused, they eventually learn that. So they make him meals maybe that he likes the way he likes them. God forbid you goof it up
1: through your podcast and your books, you spend your time helping others and giving tips and teaching them. What have other people taught you?
0: I've learned a lot of things from other people. For one thing, at the top of the list would be how courageous survivors are. You know, in fact, I don't even like to use the word victim. I like to use the word survivor because I look at people who are being victimized as people who have to kind of keep going and work their way to becoming survivors and then get free and have their lives back. But the level of courage, there are many times I look at it and say, I, I don't know if I could do what you did. I mean, so many people I've interviewed on my podcast I find myself saying, uh, it's, it's just so great to be talking with you today. I mean, I go to do the summation at the end of the podcast, and I'm thinking this is going to fall short from how I really feel. But I've learned a lot from people who are survivors, and those who are willing to talk will tell you absolutely everything. They'll just go. They've found so much courage. They're so brave. They just want to, they want to tell you what happened, you know, and, and, and they do. I've learned a whole lot from law enforcement. I, uh, in the very beginning, the prosecutor would not only tell you what's going on, but she would explain, okay, this is going down this path, which doesn't sound good, but it's actually not that bad. Uh, let me tell you what could happen in the next couple of weeks. She was always very good at calling me. I can't remember any time where I, where I really felt hurried off the phone, you know, and, and, I mean, I could just kind of ask a lot of questions and she would always say, how are you doing? How's Michelle? How's David? You know, and these type of things. So she really took an interest in us as people. And so we weren't a case number, you know, which I know can happen sometimes to people always felt good about that. But I think I just kind of learned that, that here's somebody who has this very, um, very highly responsible job who, if she slips up, if she, puts in the wrong paperwork, says the wrong thing in front of the judge when they have meetings with the defense people. If she slips up, this case is going to go in the wrong direction. This guy, even though you can't believe it could happen, but this guy could get out. And then he's back out there and he's going to do the same thing. And I know he would, but I've learned a lot. I, I think the last part, not necessarily, I guess in this case, in any particular order, is my own other family members who I've had to find my path. My son had to find his. My wife had to find ours. And we didn't walk the same path the same way. You know, we, we we kind of did it together, but we didn't do the same things together. And I think that we showed that when the going got tough, we got closer. And then also I add in my parents, who always seemed to have a good idea of what, the right things to say at the right time. In the 16 and a half years since this happened my appreciation for strong women, determined strong women has just gone through the roof. Because I've met people who are domestic violence agency directors who are incredible. I've met counselors, so many of these counselors, just women who who have put together uh, all kinds of conferences and had people like me come speak. You know, And there's some men here and there along the way too, but you know, this is always kind of written off as a, women's, a woman's issue, a woman's issue. And yet so often men are the ones who are bringing hell to these people. But it's a woman's issue.
1: Well, thank you again for being here today. Before I give you final thoughts, share some memories of your daughter, because this is not just your story, but it's her story. And I would love to hear some, if you don't mind.
0: No, I don't mind at all. Kristen Kristen was a lot of fun. Was very smart. You know, she had a partial scholarship when she went to college, but she was one of these people that she was smart, but she also was a kid. You know, she also wanted to have fun with her friends. Very loyal to her friends. I mean, we heard so many stories after she was gone from her friends saying, "I remember the time about this and I remember the time about that." You can also tell, even with her college professors, just some of the things they came up and told us around the time of the funeral, but then even in the years since then, how how they just thought she was a terrific student, a great participant, it was very creative. She She loved to write. She loved to write poetry and prose, and she would write things that were very deep. Probably when we would first read them, they were deeper than we even realized. You know, you kind of read them and say, wow, okay, you go to go to some interesting places in your mind. And then you go back and read them years later and and you just see deeper and deeper levels of meaning. So she was a really good person. She was very generous and she's a huge loss. You know, like a lot of people, a, a lot, let me say this, a lot of people who get into these relationships are very kind souls. They're very nice people. They really are. And people who are predators, the abuser predator looks for people like that because they can dump their garbage on these people and these people put up with it. They put up with it. They hang in there because they're nice, kind people. And my daughter was that type of person. Now, I know she was breaking up with him on the day that this happened to her because she'd had enough. And her friends were all saying, walk away from this guy. And she kept kind of making excuses for his behavior. And, well, you know, but you don't see him on a good day. You just heard what you heard. and But but she was terrific. She was very loyal. She was very much about family. So, you know, somebody who you really would want to see make it past 21 and go on and probably be a great mother, great wife to somebody, a great family member. So, yeah, it's... Um, I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart but but uh you know she was she was great she was a, a a friend and a family member and our daughter you know very loving but I have I'm very fortunate I took a lot of pictures through the years right from the very beginning and I have a good memory and I remember thousands of times being with her and I can still Laugh and say things to my wife about something funny she did in the car when she was in a car seat, you know, all the way back in time.
1: Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners?
0: The one thing I would leave people with is that you listen to something like this, and I don't know what people are thinking, but they might think things like, wow, that poor family, they lost their daughter, they got her all the way through high school and college, and she graduated and 20 days later, she's killed by this. Bad guy, and he is a bad guy, and he still is a bad guy even now. But you look at something like that, I liken it to when you drive down the highway and there's an accident and you slow down, everybody slows down, and then you look somewhere in your mind, you're probably thinking, Wow, well, I'm glad that wasn't us, glad it wasn't me. And people could look at it like that, but you don't see yourself in that accident because that doesn't happen to you, or it wouldn't be that bad. You know, you might have a fender bender, but it would never be that bad because you can't imagine it. You think you're immortal. And I want people to know that if you don't know the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship, you could be in one right now. Or your daughter or your niece or your neighbor or your coworker, somebody you know, your cousin, could be in one of those relationships right now, and they don't know it and you don't know it. Even though they might have said, yeah, well, my boyfriend's kind of a jerk sometimes and he does these things and like, you wouldn't think to pursue that. You just figure again, it's like, well, hmm, okay, you're probably not going to last very long. But you have to, you have to open up your mind a little bit and say, well, I don't know if this could happen to us, but I'm going to find out what I need to do to detect it and to deal with it. And then to safely get away from it. And that's why I do the When Dating Hurts podcast. And that's why I wrote the When Dating Hurts book. Years from now, when you hear something, you go, whoa, that sounds like what that guy was talking about. Or that's what Jen had on her podcast. Jen, the only fact that I put out is that one in three women will suffer serious physical harm in an intimate partner relationship sometime in their lifetime one in three women. Now it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen to any woman at any age. Now that's a crazy high number, one in three women, one in three women. The number's not quite that high on the, man, on the male side. It actually is something like one in four, you'll hear one in five, and that's sometimes hard to picture. But staying with the one in three women I mean, I get up sometimes in front of a group of people, hundreds of people, and I say to them, look, I'm looking out at all the women in front of me right now. It's like 500 people here. Let's say it's like, you know, 450 or whatever the, the math would be, women there, 150 of them are going to go through something like this. And just about everybody's going to know somebody who went through something like this. So you know it's coming. Get ready for it. Save your life you know, or at least save you from having a miserable life. Yeah. It's very, very, you know, I hate to be the boogeyman, you know, but, but it can be quite dangerous out there. And, you know, you look at COVID and you look at percentages and different things like that, you know, 750,000 people is a lot of people, but out of 330 million people in the United States, it's pretty tiny. One in three, if it were one in three, people in the United States would be 110 million people. You know, you just have to believe it could happen and you just have to do something so it doesn't happen or you can stop it if it is happening.
1: I'm going to close with by saying, listen to your instincts. They're there for a reason. When Dating Hurts podcast can be found at com. Bill, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Jen. Been a, it's been a real honor to be on here, to be asked to come in and and give our story and hope our story then makes other people's stories happier and, and they don't have to come on here with you and they they have nice full lives just the way they pictured it like we used to.
1: Thank you. Connect with Bill again at whendatinghearts.com. Thank you for listening to I Need Blue. All stories can be found at www.ineedblue.net. All of your favorite podcast platforms, I Need Blue does have a Facebook page and Instagram. This is your host, Jen Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.